Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Campbell McLaughlin. I'm a professor of international law at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And the topic that I want to talk to you about today is systemic integration in international law. Because what I want to suggest to you is that this notion is or has become a or perhaps the key organizing idea in the new international legal order. The very notion of systemic integration has entered international legal discourse. It's been widely cited in the leading modern commentaries on treaty interpretation. It's been adopted by the International Law Commission in its influential report and guidelines of 2006 on fragmentation of international law. It's given rise, if you will, to its own expression in the international law lexicon. And it's also emerged as an important practical tool in decision-making in international tribunals, from arbitral tribunals to human rights courts to the International Court of Justice itself. Well, as I must plead guilty for having coined the expression, though I certainly didn't invent the underlying concept, which has long been integral to international law, the purpose of this lecture is to try to uh, examine it by addressing five questions. Firstly, from where did the concept originate? Secondly, why has it achieved so much importance recently after having been apparently ignored for so long? Thirdly, when has it in fact been applied by international courts and tribunals? Fourthly, what is its true content and scope? And fifthly and finally, where do we go from here? What are the limitations of the principle and what is its positive potential? So dealing firstly then with the origins. If we go back to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, 1969, we find buried at the bottom of Article 31, a little subparagraph, Article 31, 3C, which simply says that there shall be taken into account, together with the context, any relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. Well, ladies and gentlemen, until a decade ago, there were almost no judicial references to this clause. In fact, one commentator in 1998 concluded that there must be some general reluctance to refer to it, and others thought it, quotes, doubtful whether this subparagraph will be of any assistance in the task of treaty interpretation. In fact, an examination of the travaux preparatoire of the Vienna Convention suggests that the paragraph was a rather reluctant entrant into the International Law Commission's canons of treaty interpretation, most of the debate focused on a rather more intractable problem of intemporality, intertemporality, which I'll come back to a little later. But if we dig a bit deeper into the history of international law, we find, in fact, that the precursors to this principle have a rather older lineage. In uh, uh, 1927, we find arbitrator Vergeil in the Georges Pinson case uh, finding or holding every international convention must be deemed tacitly to refer to general principles of international law for all questions which it does not itself resolve in express terms and in a different way. And we're also all familiar with the negative presumption frequently applied in treaty interpretation, which is that in entering into treaty obligations, the parties intend not to act inconsistently with generally recognized principles of international law or with previous treaty obligations entered into with third states. 
So the principle, or at least the underlying seeds of the principle, have been around for a long time. What then are the reasons for its contemporary salience? And I want to suggest to you that there are really three sets of reasons. The first is simply a bunch of things to do with the fundamental attributes of the international legal system itself. Rules, after all, don't exist in a legal vacuum. All international legal acts, including treaties, form part of a wider legal system, and the rules of interpretation are themselves one of the processes by which the system gives form and meaning to those individual rules. The second fundamental attribute of the international legal system is its dynamism. In other words, the content of individual rules of international law changes constantly as new rules of custom emerge and as states conclude new treaties. And therefore, the need for a principle which helps us to work out the way in which those rules might fit together is particularly important in an era of rapid change in the rules of international law. The third is the very uh, commonly observed quality of international law in, by which it's contrasted with national legal systems, which is that it provides relatively little relative priority between the different sources of law. It lacks those fundamentally vertical elements of a national legal system which help us to determine which rule takes priority over which, which court takes priority over which, by contrast, in international law, the world is flat. It's essentially in a, in a horizontal legal system. There are relatively few rules which, of their nature, take priority over others. And what this means is that what Dinah Shelton's described as the notion of relative normativity, in other words, working out how those, bit, those various disparate rules fit together as between themselves, becomes very important, and thus interpretation as a tool for doing that uh, is very important. So that's the first bunch of reasons is to do with things which I would describe as the fundamental attributes of the contemporary international legal system. The second uh, set of reasons for uh, the contemporary salience of the principle, however, is the relentless rise in treaty making as the primary source of contemporary international legal rules. Because if one had to pick, at, pick up any uh, phenomenon in the last quarter to half a century which describes the uh, international legal system, it would be the relentless rise in the use of the treaty form, both uh, for bilateral agreements, but most particularly through the development of the major multilateral uh, uh, treaties. And whether one looks uh, at the field of the environment or international investment law throughout the whole spectrum, that process of treaty making, if you like, is a process in the rolling development of a legal lexicon. In other words, international law, as I would uh, propose we see it, has moved from being a series of distinct conversations undertaken in separate rooms between separate states into a continuous dialogue in an open plan office in which concepts are continuously developed through being picked up and used by states in different treaties with different uh, contracting parties.
The third reason for the contemporary salience of the principle of systemic integration is the perils of fragmentation. What do I mean by fragmentation? Essentially, simply the notion that it's increasingly been observed that international law has separated itself into different compartments, what the International Law Commission described as self-contained regimes, whether that be the, the law of the World Trade Organization, international human rights law, international criminal law, or investment law. And of course, that, that siloization of international law has been um, uh, underlined by states' conscious choice to, to create specialized tribunals uh, in order to enable the uh, determination of disputes in any particular area to be referred to a tribunal which has competence only in that particular area. So in that sense, the stress placed on systemic integration as a possible antidote to uh, fragmentation could be seen as a product of our post-millennial angst as a result of the great flowering of international uh, lawmaking since the end of the Cold War. The promise of systemic integration is that it presents the possibility that in some way, through a process of interpretation, the conflicts between norms and different subsystems of international law may be avoided or harmonised. But the question which I want to touch upon now is to what extent has that promise in fact been fulfilled? So turning now in part three of the lecture to the application of the principle of systemic interpretation. The principle and the underlying rule uh, to which it gives it, it ex expression, namely Article 31.3c of the Vienna Convention, has now in the last decade been rather widely applied in contexts as diverse as investment arbitration and the law of the sea. But let me just take two examples for the purpose of this lecture to illustrate both the promise and the challenge uh, of uh, using uh, such a principle as a means of uh, uh, judicial decision. The first example comes from the case law of the European Court of Human Rights. In a trio of controversial cases in 2001, the court was confronted with the question of the extent to which the international law uh, principle of state immunity might or might not uh, provide a, a, a proportionate restriction on the right to a fair trial guaranteed under Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, the court, it's fair to say, was split on the issue, particularly closely in the case called Al Adsani, in which the allegations involved allegations of torture, uh, but also in, a, in another case, Michael Hinney, uh, which um, uh, concerned uh, alleged actions of state officials uh, on the territory of another state. But the way in which the court approached the problem shows the central importance of the principle of systemic integration. Because what they said was that the right of access guaranteed under Article 6 of the European Convention was not an absolute right. It was subject to restrictions provided those restrictions pursued a legitimate aim and were proportionate to that aim. And the court then used Article 31.3c as a means of harmonising Article 6 with other rules of international law 
and they held that measures taken by a state which reflect generally recognised rules of international law on state immunity cannot, in principle, be regarded as imposing a disproportionate restriction on the right to a fair trial. It's significant that the minority judges did not dissent from this proposition, rather they framed their dissent in terms of a, a, a taking a different view on the nature of the exceptions to state immunity. But the core proposition that one not merely could but must refer to other rules of international law in interpreting what was a proportionate and legitimate aim was accepted by the court. Let's look at another rather controversial uh, example, uh, recent example of the use of Article 31.3c, and that is the judgment of the International Court of Justice in the oil platforms case between Iran and the United States, uh, which involved uh, uh, the use of force in the context of a treaty of friendship still persisting uh, between those uh, states. The provision of the treaty that the court had to interpret uh, was a provision which said that the other obligations undertaken between the two contracting states did not preclude the application of measures, quotes, necessary to protect the essential security interests of one of the parties. So that was the treaty concept which the court had to interpret. And what the court did, using Article 31.3c explicitly for the first time, was to say that this phrase necessary to protect the essential security interests of one of the parties was to be interpreted in the light of the rules of customary international law on the use of force. In other words, measures could not be regarded as necessary, thought the court, uh, if they constituted a recourse to armed force which is not qualified under international law as valid acts of self-defence. So turning then in part four of the lecture to the content of the principle, I want under this heading uh, to make three broad sets of points. The first relates to the use of interpretation as a tool to achieve systemic integration. Because what I want to suggest is that the principle of systemic integration operates a bit like a master key in a building. Most times when we need to get into a building, it's sufficient simply to use the key that we've got to our own office or apartment. And we don't need to go beyond that. In the same way, a treaty interpreter, most of the time when he or she is interpreting a treaty, may simply refer to the clear terms of the treaty uh, which mandate a particular uh, decision. But in the hard cases, we may need to go beyond that. So in, the difficult, in, in, in case of difficulty, when we're uh, living or working in a building, we may well need to call on the master key, which will enable us to go into other rooms other than the one that we normally go into. So too, in treaty interpretation, in the difficult cases, we may need to use the master key of systemic integration under Article 31.3c to look beyond the particular words of the particular treaty and to see it in its broader context of the broader, wider rules of international uh, law which uh, frame that treaty and indeed give it life. In that way, uh, the reference required to other rules of international law under Article 33c 
is, as Max Huber once illuminatingly put it, one of a series of radiating concentric circles of interpretation in which we start from the treaty text and then gradually work outwards uh, to uh, various other sources of interpretation in order to find the meaning of that text. And so the direct application of the principle really is the contemporary statement of those two presumptions that I mentioned at the outset, the positive presumption from the Georges Pinson case that every treaty must be deemed tacitly to refer to general principles of international law for all questions which it does not itself resolve in expressed terms and in a different way, and the negative presumption that in entering into treaty obligations parties intend not to act inconsistently with generally recognised principles of international law or with previous treaty obligations entered into with third states. Well, so far so good, but what does the principle really tell us about where to look for those other rules of international law? This brings me to my second big point about content, and that is that one of the principal virtues and functions of the principle in modern times has been to reinvigorate the concept of customary international law and of general principles of law as sources of international law, despite, or I would say because of, the very proliferation of treaty making as the prime source of law in contemporary international society. Why is that so? Well, it seems to me at any rate that those two other sources of international law, custom and general principles, have assumed a renewed significance precisely because they are generally applicable to all members of the international community and because they supply default principles which are applicable when the treaty itself does not supply a more specific rule. Again, to quote an early 20th century arbitral tribunal, after all, the function of jurisprudence is to resolve the conflict of opposing rights and interests by applying, in default of any specific provisions of law, the corollaries of general principles, and thus to find the solution of the problem. So when we apply custom or general principles of law in the interpretation of a treaty term, we don't generally do so because of the overriding character of that norm, though that may be so, as was, has been suggested in relation to the law on the use of force in oil platforms. But for the most part, we refer to those rules of custom or general principles because those rules perform what I would describe as a systemic or constitutional function in the international legal order. They, are, they supply the basic rules of statehood, state responsibility, immunity, the basic uh, rules on the use of force, the principle of good faith, and the like. In other words, what they do is to set the basic parameters, the architecture of international law, if, if you will, within which all other international lawmaking, including the treaty in question, may take place. And if one thinks about the way in which treaties are uh, elaborated, 
and the, the kinds of terms which can frequently uh, give rise to at least apparent interpretation difficulties, one can see that in many cases that conversation in the open plan office that I described earlier is being taken, is taking place uh, against the background of a shared legal lexicon, a shared legal language amongst treaty negotiators in which those basic rules of treaty uh, of custom and general principles are assumed and applied. And thus very often uh, when we refer to custom or general principles we will do so precisely because the treaty contains an open textured uh, uh, key word, in other words a word that is not itself defined in some different way in the treaty, the meaning of which is in fact derived from that wider legal system. And, and uh, thus uh, it's the wider legal system which provides the concrete meaning for it. Well then if, as I argue, custom and general principles have a central importance in uh, this contextualised form of interpretation of treaty provisions, we should not neglect the other potential application for Article 31.3c, which is its application to other treaty rules applicable in the relations between the parties. Now here, of course, we must focus quite precisely on the question whether the other uh, prospective uh, treaty to be referred to is in fact applicable in the relations between the parties, in other words, in force between them, since treaties, unlike custom, uh, are always a matter of uh, state uh, consent. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, reference to other treaty rule rules can also be very important uh, in the interpretation of a particular treaty term, particularly where the treaty is passed into or expresses a rule of custom, but also in a different way where the other treaty provides evidence of a common understanding of the parties which it was reflected tacitly uh, in the language chosen for the treaty under interpretation. Perhaps the most difficult question in relation to the application of other treaty rules is the question which taxed the International Law Commission when it was framing uh, the rules uh, of the Vienna Convention on Interpretation in Articles 31 and 32, that canon of rules of interpretation which has now been repeatedly held itself to have passed into customary international law. And the question which the International Law Commission couldn't answer in a definitive manner was the question of intertemporality, namely the question whether when one refers to other rules of international law is one concerned with the rules that were in force at the time when the treaty was concluded or may one also refer to subsequent uh, rules of international law. Now it's impossible to give a definitive answer to that question, uh, that not, not uh, because uh, the, the uh, that's not because the question is incapable of specific answer in specific cases, but rather because it does all depend on the nature of the question being asked and the nature of the particular uh, issue of treaty interpretation before the court. It might make a great deal of sense in the interpretation, for example, of a treaty concluded between states in relation to uh, a land or maritime boundary 
to interpret that treaty by reference to the rules of international law applicable at the time when the treaty was concluded, as Judge Huber himself considered in the uh, Island of Palmas case. But in many other cases, <clears throat> the contracting parties to a treaty will choose terms which of their nature uh, uh, refer to open-texted and evolving concepts and which therefore in order to arrive at their interpretation it is necessary to refer to subsequent developments of international law uh, in the interpretation of the treaty provision. We have for this notion uh, the blessing of the International Court of Justice in the Gabchikovo Najimaros case in which it referred to a range of other agreements entered into between the states in the field of environmental uh, law uh, in order to interpret the treaty uh, in question. And also uh, we have uh, the subsequent a very important uh, arbitral uh, decision of an arbitration tribunal constituted under the auspices of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in the Iron Rhine case uh, in which a, a treaty dating back to 1838 uh, was held to be required to be interpreted by reference to the wide-ranging uh, environmental and other obligations concluded between the contracting states in the intervening century and a half. So turning then in the fifth and final portion of the lecture to the broader significance of the principle of uh, uh, systemic integration. Now, I don't want to overstate this. It is, after all, only a principle of interpretation. It cannot, of itself, resolve true conflicts of norms between different parts uh, of the international legal system. And, as has been correctly pointed out by other scholars, it does not, of itself, supply the means of evaluating the strength of rival claims of competing principles within the international legal system. Should we, in any given decision, give preference to the principle of free trade over the protection of the environment, for example? But what I want to suggest to you is that, in fact, it is the function of the international legal system, as any legal system, to seek to find a continuously shifting balance between values and interests which are inevitably uh, going to compete. To paraphrase the separate opinion of Judge Higgins and others in the Congo and Belgium judgment of the International Court of Justice, international law seeks the accommodation of values and not the triumph of one norm over another. And so what the principle of systemic integration can do is to operate before an irreconcilable conflict of norms has arisen and in fact to seek to avert through the process of interpretation such conflicts. By contrast, what it does is it provides an orderly process of legal reasoning. As the International Law Commission study group on fragmentation observed in its report, legal interpretation and thus legal reasoning builds systemic relationships between rules and principles by envisaging them as parts of some human effort or purpose. Far from being merely an academic aspect of the legal craft, Systemic thinking penetrates all legal reasoning, including the practice of law administration by judges and administrators. So in conclusion, what I propose is that the principle of systemic integration in international law contributes at a very practical level 
to the broader task of finding an accommodation between the conflicting values and interests in the international community and that task of finding that accommodation may be said to be the fundamental task of international law today. Thank you very much.